I'm going to carry on and talk about um, three more uh, of the early monks. Uh, there's one called Kashapa, uh, and one day he was the only uh, monk who immediately understood uh, the Buddha's silent teaching of the holding up of a flower. And his eyes showed that he'd understood this teaching. If you think of that lovely um, part of the um, threefold puja that Sangharakshita wrote, um, reverencing the Buddha, we offer flowers, flowers that today uh, are fresh and sweetly blooming, flowers that tomorrow are faded and fallen. You can see it's written by a poet, can't you? Flowers that tomorrow are faded and fallen. Our bodies too like flowers will pass away. And he immediately grasped the teaching of the holding up of this flower in silence. And he went to um, found what is, is known as the Chan school, the, the, the Zen school, which um, reckons that um, the, the meditations can be developed um, really without quite so much doctrine. Although when you look at the amount that's being written about Zen, there were many clever monks and, of course, uh, some beautiful poetry. Um, right, now the, the two who uh, are a wonderful example of uh, spiritual friendship are Shariputra and Mogayana. Uh, when they were young men, apparently they were rather clever. Um, both of them were considered... Uh, extremely bright in their villages from fairly well-to-do families and um, they both of them found life at the time rather unsatisfying there's a story that Shariputra went with his friend Mogayana to some festivities and turned to his friend and said my goodness if this is the best that life can offer it is rather empty <laughs> which is um, um, <laughs> what I feel walking down <coughs> high street uh, and um, they both vowed that they would um, devote themselves to spiritual life, although their parents weren't very keen. And um, they went off and found some good teachers, but they still felt that they could go further. And they one day, and they they separated to hear as many different teachers as possible, but promised that they would share what they found when they met again. And uh, Shariputra saw a monk one day on the arms round who impressed him so much by his demeanour, um, his brightness and his kindness, uh, that he asked him who his teacher was, and his teacher was the Buddha. This... Uh, <coughs> slightly older monk was called Ashvajit and so Shariputra said please please share your teaching with me and Ashvajit said just come with me um, and after the meal I will share it with you and this is the most incredible teaching that um, I've admired for years which is the teaching of conditionality 
And I think what I've really admired is the fact that Shariputra immediately understood it and immediately reached stream entry. Now, the teaching of conditionality was put extremely simply. Um, if this arises, then that arises. If this ceases, then that ceases. Um, the idea being that um, it's conditions and many different conditions that go to um, make um, this chair, our presence here, etc. And um, Shariputra uh, went on to, uh, with his discovery, to uh, find his friend Mogayana persuaded him that this was the most overwhelming teaching, which it actually is. It's called Praticca Samutpada. We'll look at it in a little more detail in a minute and discuss it. And uh, they both decided they must meet the Buddha and ask if they could become his disciples. Uh, they were actually already disciples of somebody else, um, persuaded these men to go with them, and uh, were so impressed by the Buddha when they met him that they became his two of his leading disciples. Um, Shariputra was particularly talented at leading uh, people as far as stream entry, that is to say, to try to leave behind some of our fetters, such as thinking that we've got um, an unchanging self. Um, and Mogayana uh, would talk about um, enlightenment, uh, and now at Carver City we'll read a little bit about them a rather um, tender piece at the beginning that although Ashvajit wasn't a senior monk it was he who'd given the teaching and so every evening Shariputra remembered him Shariputra was forever grateful to Ashvajit Shariputra was forever grateful to Ashwajit for having shown him the way, and for the rest of his life, before he lay down to sleep each night, he made three deep prostrations in Ashwajit's direction. The two friends often worked together in the service of the Buddha and the Sangha. After the Buddha's ambitious cousin Devadatta had created a schism and led 500 young monks away with him to the vulture's peak, the Buddha sent Shariputra and Modgalyana to win them back. When Devadatta saw them approaching, he assumed they had decided to join his faction and welcomed them as his own chief disciples. That evening, while he was resting, the two elders spoke to the assembled monks, led them to stream entry, and persuaded them to return to the Buddha. With his acute intelligence, Shariputra soon, de soon developed the reputation of having a highly developed analytical cap capacity. Indeed, he is credited as the founding father of the Abhidharma approach to spiritual training. But his teaching could also be very simple and direct. 
an ascetic once came to see him to discuss the spiritual life. Nirvana, he said, you followers of the Buddha always go on about Nirvana. What exactly is this Nirvana? The ending of craving, aversion and delusion. That is Nirvana, he replied simply. Thank you. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's like that teaching to King Bimbisara, isn't it? Is it? Right, thanks. So this is uh, an absolutely central teaching uh, that transformed Shariputra's life. Uh, and I thought maybe now, if we have five minutes, just discussing um, what conditionality means to you. Uh, I'm going to suggest two things that it that it means to me, and I thought perhaps you could share how much it's helped you. For example, if you can think of all the um, conditions that have led um, somebody to be in the situation they're in, then uh, you can look on their situation in a much less judgmental way, in a much more understanding way uh, about all the conditions that have um, created um, whatever problems that uh, they have. Um, the other way of, of, of looking at conditions is, of course, that we have certain freedom to change our conditions. And the more we can, can change our conditions, um, for example, lead a simpler life, um, perhaps listen less to the radio, um, Well, I'm sure you can think of lots of examples. It will, in fact, help give us that little bit more time to concentrate on, um, are we being mindful? Are we really being as mindful as, as about our thoughts as we could be? I was appalled when I started looking at the normal thoughts that I have getting onto a bus, at the way I was... Um, judging people from the exterior. Goodness me, so-and-so's overweight. Goodness me, that's a bad colour combination. So, how on earth can I have such... It's such an ordinary mind. So I, I really worked at sort of trying to um, think about just how much we all share. So using the, the bus journey in a somewhat more constructive way about the... Um, using those conditions. So um, I thought now, maybe sort of for five minutes, you could share in the same twos and threes or, or different, uh, different ones um, about where conditionality um, has actually helped you with your practice. Right, well, <coughs> you, you, would somebody like to... Um, share what you've been sharing in your small groups Mm. opportunity in this moment 
put conditions in place to actually change what's going to happen in the future. But, but then sort of the thoughts move towards how much interest we have on actually events. I suppose there's so much momentum that's going on that there's not a lot we can actually change actually physically around us. But what we can change is, is our attitude, our mental state uh, in the future, which is, sort of, I suppose, in one respect, creative world we see. Helen, so, Kevin, I pointed out there's a lot, lot that we can't <coughs> change, but we can. <coughs> can work on our mental state. Oh, lovely, Mike. Um, Good. Do, does everyone know Mike? Mm. Well, I was, was realising that uh, conditions were important. Mark, that's looking uh, weaker. But I've been suffering from a bit of anxiety, lack of confidence, and my awareness isn't as good as it used to be. And the conditions were, when I was at best in my awareness, were kind of perfect. So I used to do yoga. Uh, I lived on my own, so I was able to meditate when I wanted. Now I don't live on my own. I don't do yoga because I've got a bit of a nature. And that's why um, I'm not as aware as I used to be. Right. But uh, I realised that I need to kind of improve the conditions a little bit, or at least find time to meditate more at home. Mm, mm. So Mike's been analysing um, where his his difficulties are obstructions, mm. not being able to do yoga and, and um, pain in the knees and um, not being alone so much. But you're going. You realise that you can actually create better conditions for for meditating. Yeah. Kind of, it's, it's awareness is at kind of the root of noticing, isn't it? And kind of stopping and, and, and kind of realizing. You, you mm. can argue that everything comes into being and sort of passes away and it's, it's cause and effect and, and to do with different conditions. Yes. Um, and by noticing it, you can take some responsibility for some of the things. Um, yeah. And make different kind of choices. But yeah. It comes back to that sort of awareness actually in the moment, in time, as it were. Yes. I found it tremendously cheering that the Buddha realised just how much capacity we have to develop our awareness or, or to develop our moral conscience so that you know, we can live, um, say, more ethically. And the more ethically we can live, the more um, contented we can be. Um, does anyone want to add something to... Yeah, we also discussed, um, I guess, in a way, what is... Um that mindfulness is a condition that, that leads you to something. So we were trying to understand what, uh, um, like, why do you want to be mindful? What, what's what's that supporting? That was an interesting discussion. We went round in circles a little bit sometimes, but we, yeah, we got, we got there in the end, didn't we? <laughs>
did you decide? Nicer to yourselves than to other people? Yeah, I sort of tied myself in knots with this, but got there in the end. And I'm just saying at the moment with the practice, I'm trying to sort of become more aware of moods and changing positive and negative states in order to be more aware, to be more mindful. But I kind of got myself in knots, but in the end, I knew where I was going. Helen, Christine's talking about um, the purpose of mindfulness um, and uh, she feels that it helps her understand her moods and deal with them um, far better. Right, now we come on to the most inspiring of the nuns and she taught the spiral path. So the spiral path will take us off the wheel on which we merely go round and round and gives us the possibility of a much more progressive and creative way of looking at the way we could live the Dharma. Now, I'm hoping I've got enough copies for everyone. If I haven't, perhaps you could share one between two, but I think I might have enough. And this gives us the, the details of the spiral path that uh, <coughs> Dharma Dinner was the first to... Uh, teach. So there are 12 stages that are elaborated um, by her and the many monks that have followed the spiral path. And it's been particularly inspiring to um, the founder of the FWBO, the uh, Sangharakshita, whom you'll, you can meet in April, um, because this path is so much more creative. It can take us away from the reactiveness of the, the wheel, the reaction of, <coughs> reactions of feeling that leading to the same sorts of contacts, the same sorts of craving. Uh, and normally, the... Uh, path starts where there's the, the gap. I'm afraid I have a prettier wheel than you do. It, the, the beautiful colours of the Buddha wouldn't reproduce on the um, photocopier. But in fact the spiral path does lead up to, the, uh, to Buddhahood. And the gap starts in fact between feeling and craving, which um, I imagine we've discussed quite often. Um, welcome Davinda. Is there a spare copy? We've just started this very minute. That's all, looking at the spiral path, Devinda, which was taught by um, a nun. So the spiral path begins when we realise that gap. and We realise that we do have some possibility of looking at that gap with the awareness. I mean, this is why... Awareness is, is, is so important that uh, we can take a step backwards and we don't have to race in and um, buy some more food or a, another T-shirt. Um, we can, in fact, um, take the step of looking at um, where our lives are going. And you notice it is a spiral path. <laughs> and up to a certain stage... You can come down the spiral as well as go up. I'm sorry, Helen. 
You've seen the spiral path, haven't you? You've seen a picture of it. <coughs> and so <coughs> the the different stages have been put on onto this. Um, I'll only <coughs> only come onto them slowly. And it's rather a beautiful story of um, how this this was first taught. Um, Damadina had a husband who uh, was longing for a more spiritual life. He went to hear the Buddha and was so impressed by the Buddha that the sutra states, states that he reached stream entry and um, decided he would go forth, leave the household and asked her permission, and which she gave. And she decided, right, as he'd gone off uh, to follow a spiritual life, she'd do the same. So she uh, asked permission if she could uh, join a, a group of nuns. She was given that permission um, and studied with such um, thoroughness that um, her husband heard about this and um, decided he'd go and see her, wondering how she got on. And uh, in a minute, Cover City will read a little about that. But um, the marvellous thing is he went to ask her. The sutra suggests that he possibly wasn't expecting a great deal. And she gave him the wonderful teaching about the fact that, you know, we are not a fixed self. We're just made up of um, processes. And... um, we needn't remain stuck on this uh, wheel. We can, in fact, follow a spiral, a spiral path. If, like the two of them, we use a feeling of dukkha um, to decide we'll do more with our lives. So dukkha you can translate as dissatisfaction. I've seen it translated as stress, which, consider we use the <coughs> considering we use the word so much, I thought was quite good. Ratnaguna likes the translation unease. Um, I quite like um, unsatisfactoriness because even if you've got a job that is right livelihood, I mean there are moments when it's it's either tough or um, something um, unpleasant can happen. Uh, even in good relationships, there are misunderstandings. And we're only too aware of, of, of this unsatisfactoriness of, of even good aspects of life, <coughs> which um, I imagine is what originally brought us all here, searching for something more. So the second uh, step on this path is, is, is faith. Now, it's not faith in the sense that we sometimes use it in the West, of blind faith. It's, um, it's got various meanings. One is what you put your heart on. And we're searching for values that um, we can um, put our hearts on, i.e. that we can go to refuge to, that we can find um, rather more satisfactory, satisfactory than those in our um, consumerist uh, society. And, of course, once we've actually um, been reading the Dharma, trying to meditate for some time, then we're going to gain much more confidence in the teaching. So another meaning of of faith, shraddha, 
It's actually confidence. So it's, it's confidence in what we've learned, confidence in the fact that the teachings of uh, the Buddha do work. And um, I th- <clears throat> this always comforts me that there's this, this rational aspect to it as well, that, that, that we see um, that the place it, it's gaining in our lives is, is something that is, is actually making our lives um, bigger um, hopefully more um, compassionate, uh, hopefully more ethical, because the Buddha suggested the, uh, the precepts that we should follow. Um, and I, I, you've all seen the precepts, so I won't go over those, but um, many of my friends find that following the precepts as um, well as they can does help ease the conscience and the easier one's conscience, uh, the more likely you are to feel contented with, to a certain extent, with the progress you're making. And therefore you can get to the next stage, hopefully, which is called joy. Um, I don't usually say more than contented, and that's about as as far as um, I get. But... um, I think it's really important in the spiritual life to be able to gain glimpses of of the happiness that that it can give you. Um, The happiness that you can get just um, sitting on your own, meditating, looking out the window at a beautiful scene, really appreciating a cup of tea. When Nishpura does his session day here, he serves the tea in complete silence and we just hold the bowl trying to imagine it's a Japanese tea ceremony. Um, so making something uh, very simple into, into something more, more beautiful. And um, there's a tremendous sense of happiness when one spent a, a day doing something like that. Um, so I want to uh, come on to discuss that um, in a minute, but I'm going to ask Kafir uh, City to read from the uh, sutra which describes um, her teaching to her husband and um, her final declarations. So Carvey Sid is going to read Dhammadina's words, Helen. What is the counterpart of ignorance? True knowledge is the counterpart of ignorance. And what is the counterpart of true knowledge? Deliverance is the counterpart of true knowledge. What is the counterpart of deliverance? Nirvana is the counterpart of deliverance. There is, in other words, a samsara, cyclic, or reactive tendency within conditioned existence where states simply pass over into their opposites. And there is also a nirvana, creative, or spiral tendency in which positive mental states can increasingly be augmented. And what does nirvana give way to? 
asked Miss Arthur. You have pushed this line of questioning too far, replied Dalladina. You have not seen that there is a limit to such questions. The spiritual life culminates in Nirvana, and that is its end. If you like, go to the Buddha and ask him. Then remember what he tells you. Pleased with what he had heard from his former wife, Bisanka went to the Buddha and recounted their conversation. Dharmadina is truly wise, Bisanka, the Buddha told him. If you had asked me any of those questions, I should have explained it all to you in the same way. You should remember what she has said. This is a rare example of a female disciple's teaching being given the status of Buddhavachana, the word of the Buddha. By stating that he would have taught things in exactly the same way, the Buddha gave Dharmadina's teaching the stamp of canonical authenticity. Dharmadina's verses in the Tarigata also echo those of the Buddha. She took his verses, which appear in the Dharmapada, and transposed them into the feminine gender. Eager for the end of suffering, full of awareness, that is the way. When one's heart is not attached to pleasure, we say, that woman has entered the stream. Thank you very much. See the lovely details in some of these sutras about the relationship between uh, Dhammadina and her husband. Thank you. So what I'm going to ask you now is to uh, discuss again and discuss ways in which we can... Um, increase our confidence in um, the teaching I mean what is it that we found in our own experience or that we've seen in, in, in the lives of um, other people um, that have increased our <coughs> our shraddha our um, faith or, or our um, heartwarming response towards uh, the Dharma um, and is there something in your own experience that actually increased this sense to the degree that, that you do feel um, joy at times uh, very sweet the other day I was teaching the Tuesday afternoon meditation and somebody who hasn't been very often but thinks it's wonderful um, said oh dear I feel such a sense of joy but I think what ought I to go on counting? <laughs> and she'd actually got to this um, sense of uh, joy that's sometimes called uh, jhana. Now, <clears throat> the, the joyful aspect uh, is very important. <clears throat> and in fact, it's because we can grow, this is, we, we can bring all our creativity into the way we use our dissatisfaction to find values that are more worthwhile. Um, the way we can use um, our imagination uh, in the reading of these texts, um, the way we can use our response to other people um, to learn in discussion and so on. So it's, it's very much a, a process of um, growth, of getting bigger. Um, and 
using uh, as much as we can of um, all these early, early monks and nuns' teachings. So I suggest um, that you get into the same groups or different groups again for about five minutes to, to share what's helped you, and then we'll share in the group again. Okay? Okay, so we just have five minutes and then you can all have a cup of tea. Thank you. 
serve a cup of tea <laughs> but what I'm going to suggest is that you continue your discussions over a cup of tea because I notice that what normally happens is that we change our topics completely instead of continuing to discuss the Dharma which always seems to me is a pity I remember there was a time when Moksha Priya and I used to like not having a gap in the middle in order not to stop the flow of the discussion but um, I'll just end up quickly, because I think you all have a copy of this, by pointing out that it does 
actually lead through different stages. It, it is progressive, and it's something that um, monks have, in fact, um, worked on, so that this is um, psychologically um, a, 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 a very good picture of what can be obtained through, um, through meditation um, after joy, rapture, then a feeling of tremendous calm so that you, you really <clears throat> can um, achieve uh, far more um, quietening of the monkey mind. Then after that, once again, happiness. And then you get to this stage <clears throat> of um, managing to break the first three fetters of not having to return to our ordinary states of mind. So you could actually <clears throat> get a, a, enough insight to be able to see that we're not a fixed self, we're just processes, um, not to need rites and ritual, rituals, and beyond doubt, beyond constantly asking oneself, is this the right way, am I doing it well enough, etc. Um, and finally, um, we can achieve enlightenment. It's an ideal that we very seldom remember, I think, in everyday life. And in fact, only one card, when I became ordained, mentioned enlightenment. It was Pocha Priya. Now, it could be that all my friends realised it was going to take me <laughs> so, so long it wasn't worth <clears throat> mentioning. Yeah, I suppose if I, were, if I were a pure land follower, I would think it's somewhere underneath here. Um, I was in mind already. But as I'm not a pure land follower, I, I think I have to work really hard on the path. But it was interesting that only... Um, occasionally do we actually remember that this is one of our ideals, that it's somewhere, something that we can achieve, that this is actually the, the top of this really inspiring um, spiral path. So um, thank you all very much for coming and uh, for having such constructive discussions. And let's see if we can actually um, continue over a cup of tea um, to discuss what we were just discussing, how, in fact, we can um, develop more confidence and more sense of joy in our practice. Thank you.